0: Just go to Indeed.com slash wire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: All systems are good. Ladies and gentlemen, Chris Van
0: Vliet! Oh! All right, my friends, welcome back to another audio adventure here on Insight. It's me, it's me, it's C-V-V. I'm Chris Van Thank you so much for being with us on this episode. And if you haven't yet, please take a moment right now to click follow or subscribe wherever you're listening. It helps so much more than I could ever explain. You know, I talk quite a bit about it. And if you follow me on Instagram, you know it. I love bass fishing. I started fishing in bass tournaments when I was 14. I'm now the co-founder of the Bass Fishing Tungsten Weight Company called Woo Tungsten, W-O-O exclamation mark Tungsten. So this conversation today is extra special for me. Mike Canali is one of the best professional bass fishermen to ever do it. And it was an honor to be able to sit down with him and pick his brain about everything. You can find him on social media, at Mike Iaconelli, if you're not following me, you can find me at Chris Van Vleet And we get into how professional bass fishing even works, but at the heart of this message, whether you know nothing about bass fishing or whether you are a seasoned pro, at the heart of this conversation is the idea that anything you want to do in life is possible. Like anything. I always talk about if somebody's doing the thing that you want to do, that just means that it's possible for you as well and i think this sums it up best this is a clip of mike Canelli winning the 2003 bassmaster classic this is like the super bowl of bass fishing and he lands the winning fish and he knows it's going to be the winning fish and this is what we hear passion, right? The passion there. I love it. Never give up. Ah, oh, this is so good. Please welcome Mike canelli. Aish. Chris.
1: Thank you so much for making the time to do this. Oh man. Thank, thank you. This is honestly, this is an amazing thing for me. It's an amazing opportunity. I follow a lot of what you do and, um, You get to talk to and interview and meet like actual famous people and celebrities. And I'm just sort of a scrub from Jersey. So thank you for having me on. Stop it. Stop (laughs) it. In the fishing world, you're like Tiger Woods. You're Uh, like
0: Kobe Bryant in the fishing world.
1: Yeah, I don't know about that. I I do love to fish, though. I'm very passionate about it. Um, It's been something I've loved since I was a little kid, like literally like little kid. It's, you know, it's it's just something I've always wanted to do. Um, so all these years later, I'm 50 now. I've been doing it professionally for almost 30 years. So all these years later, it's still kind of like not real to me, honestly. Yeah. Like, it's still amazing that I get to do this like as a job. It's, it's mind-blowing, man. It's crazy. Well,
0: my audience will know that I'm really passionate about fishing. And like when I'm passionate about the things that I'm passionate about, like I dive all the way in so i've fished in a lot of the tournaments that you have fished in you were on the pro side i was obviously on the amateur side so like we've definitely like our paths have crossed i was actually at a tournament on lake erie that you won i was living in cleveland for five years so the fact that we now get to sit down and chat about this is it's a huge honor for me. So thank you, Mike. Well, the, the,
1: the, the, honor's mine as well. And thank you for having me on.
0: When you explain to people who maybe don't understand the world of professional bass fishing, yeah. what you do for a living,
1: how do you explain it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's an easy explain and it's a hard explain at the same time. So I'll, I'll try to navigate right in the middle here. Um, our sport, professional bass fishing is set up a lot like other sports so you know you you come into the sports realm as you know an amateur as a young as as a young uh participant you work your way up through the very grassroots level and as you work your way up you know your your level of skill increases but your qualification increases so if you follow golf or tennis very very similar right so I started as an amateur angler, uh, you know, co-angler, um, did that for a few years, advanced to like the regional, like semi-pro level, did that for a few years, fished some qualification tours, did that for a few years. And then finally I accumulated enough points to fish professionally. So, you know, that, part's, that part of it's easy. So, you know, we, we travel around the country, we fish tournaments, there's rules, regulations, just like other sports. The hard part to explain is our sport has a little bit of um, other sports in it, like NASCAR, even a little like wrestling, uh, where branding and marketing and promotions are just as important part of the sport as the actual competition. So, you know, so that part uh, is a lot of what I do as well. And, And I work with companies... To help sell and promote their products, I work really hard on my social outreach, uh, TV shows, things like that, to help build my brand and fan following, to then in turn be able to help companies help them market and, and sell their products. And there's
0: real money in this. Like when you look at your career earnings of over three million dollars, I think that that blows a lot of people away.
1: There's real money in it, and and you know, to be honest, if you strip away all of that. I would still be doing it because I love it. And, you know, our sport, when you look at it, it's very young in terms of other mainstream professional sports. Right. So, you know, you look at baseball and hockey and soccer, they've been around forever, forever, you know, a hundred years plus fishing. We started in the the early to mid seventies. So we're a young sport. And because of that, you know, our, Our income isn't at that mega sport level yet, but it's for sure getting there. Uh, Like I said, I'd be doing it if I was, if I could break even, if I could get by, I'd be doing it. But there's a lot of money now in the sport. Um, I I think the average event now, pro event that we fish for, you're talking 100 to $150,000 for championship events, quarter million, half a million dollars in some of these events. And they've that's even had for the some winner, more, by the way, for, yeah. the, for the winner. And yeah. they've even had some million dollar tournaments. Uh, but you know, the real, the real thing, and, I, and I'm proud that our sport is, has gotten there is the amount of money that you can make above and beyond your winnings. And that's a real important part because it's hard to win. It is hard to win. It's so, uh, I mean, I know it's like this in other sports too, but I've been doing it 30 years. I've won like 12 tour professional tour events in 30 years. It's that hard to win. Right. So I'm really proud that the sport's gotten to a stage where a young angler an angler just getting into it can, can actually make a really, really good living through endorsements, through other pieces of the fishing pie and, and, and and make a living, right? You, you know, I, I mean, I can remember getting in the sport where most of the guys didn't make a good living. Most of the guys lost money. Most of the guys were in the red. I, I remember dreaming about the day that I could make a million dollars without ever cashing a check in a tournament. I dreamt about that day. And, you know, it's here that those days are here now. So, uh, and, and it should be, I, I can tell you, I follow a lot of other sports, um, and, you know, the athletes in our sport, the participants in professional fishing work just as hard. They're just as passionate. Uh, uh, there's as much involved physically, mentally. Uh, and I'm I'm proud. I'm proud of where the sport is in in 2022. You know, there's going to be a lot of people listening to us going,
0: he keeps calling it a sport. He keeps calling them athletes. Don't you yeah. just go out there and if the fish
1: bite, they bite? Oh, yeah. Yeah, It's it's great. I've been fighting and I don't mind fighting this battle because I've been fighting it for a long time. Yeah, I'm uh, sure and and you know i can see because fishing definitely has a lot of stereotypes attached to it and some are well deserved others aren't but you know fishing should be a fun relaxing sport it should be that but it's also very competitive and to get to the top level you have to obtain those same skill sets and traits that any top athlete has and you know, it's a little less physical in, in fishing. And I think that's where maybe the confusion is, you know, people say, oh, well, you know, you're fishing, how physical can that be? Maybe a little less physical, but just as many mechanics. And from a mental side, I would argue that our sport fishing is more challenging than a lot. You know, we deal with, um, an environment that's not controlled. You know, we're, we're out on a boat, eight-hour days, Uh, we have that eight-hour period in all conditions, whatever's thrown at us. So sun, wind, waves, rain, calm, dirty, clear, uh, reservoirs, rivers, lakes, West Coast, East Coast, North, South, we have to deal with all those things that change, not month to month or year to year, but minute to minute, hour to hour, the environment's changing. And you have to be a study of the fish. And, and you have to be able to change and adapt and outsmart and outthink what that fish is doing to catch the five biggest every day, to win the tournament, to win Angler of the Year, to win the Classic. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot. And I love defending... Uh, <laughs> fishing as a sport, because it really is. It really is.
0: I think one of the biggest things people don't understand is how many different skill sets you need to be successful as an angler, because you need to know how to drive a boat. You need to know how to like read charts and read graphs. And then you need to know how to catch them, whether they're in shallow water, deep water, tidal water, and everything else that you just listed.
1: Yeah, it's a a lot. Uh, For a lot of your listeners and viewers, if you're old like me, and you remember the Rubik's Cube from the 80s, Fishing, I I always describe fishing as like the Rubik's cube and, you know, to solve just a side of that, I've never solved it in my life, believe me, but to solve a side of the Rubik's cube was a big deal for me. Mm. And, you know, that's like fishing and it's all those elements and you have to, you have to get them all right. You know, you have to, you have to make the right decisions and you have to keep adjusting and, and, and tweaking and churning. And then finally you solve that side and that's fishing. And yeah. you know this, the 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 Rubik's cube side being solved in fishing is you catching the fish when when you when you actually start figuring out and and the fish come in the boat and and that's solving the puzzle uh the the one great analogy may, maybe a lot of other uh, people watching that participate in other sports it, the one thing you could probably understand really well is something called getting in the zone, which you hear you hear talk about a lot in other sports and In fishing, that's what you strive to reach, you know, when you're out there and all of a sudden, like everything you do is right. Your decisions are perfect. Your timing is right. It's almost like you're out of your body watching yourself fish and things just start happening. And I've been really fortunate in my career to have that happen a couple dozen times. That's it. And it's easy to talk about. It's easy to talk about how to get into the zone and what you got to do and think. But it's hard for it to actually happen um but yeah. when it does it's magical you win trophies you catch fish you make money it's great
0: <laughs> what do you think's the biggest lesson about life mike that fishing has taught you
1: oh man there's there's a lot i i would say from when i was a kid and i was real fortunate i i grew up in uh, lived in philadelphia uh until i was seven grew up in new jersey I definitely didn't have the background of fishing that a lot of people have in different parts of the country, but I loved it. My family got me involved in it. And I can tell you that fishing has taught me tons and tons of of life life lessons. Um, For sure, you know, patience would be one, you know, dedication would be one, concentration, you know, effort. There's so many different life lessons uh, but you know, the one is, and, and it's, it's become my tagline. And, and I know you've had other people on the show that have also talked about the same thing, but it is to, to never give up and push, to keep pushing. I'm a huge advocate of that in fishing and in life. Um, you know, we've all had moments in our life and, and, and fishing. I've had moments in my fishing day where everything has, is failing and everything is bad, <laughs> you know, you're, you don't have a fish and, and you're down and you break a big one off or, you know, and I've had those things happen in my life. I've had, you know, death, deaths and failures and, uh, you know, things I've done wrong and, and all those things. And there are times in fishing in life where you, you want to, you know, your instinct is, man, this, this sucks. I don't want to do this anymore. I didn't want to give up. I can't do, it I can't do it. But that, that something from within that keeps you going, that drives you, that keeps pushing you, that never give up spirit. I've had that in my life. I've had that in my fishing career and it's been the biggest one, Chris, for me. Um, I've, I've not just, not only have won tournaments because of that, but I'm still here because of that. And I've had a few parts in my career where I was, I I thought it was over. I thought I was ready to be done. And I just kept pushing and, and worked through some hard times. And, uh, it's a great it's a great fishing motto, it's a great life motto. Yeah, I
0: love it so much because you're right, it applies to literally anything. Yeah. There was a VHS tape when I was growing up that I wore out <laughs> with the Bass Masters. It was the Vermont Tomp 150. Yes, on, on Lake Champlain and yes. I wore, I watched this so so much. I got to ask you, the guy that I'm talking to right now feels so different from the guy who fished in that tournament. Where did the shift happen?
1: Yeah, there was, uh, uh, and man, I, I love that you brought that example up because it was a long time ago. It, it, it's almost hard to remember, but as you were saying it, little flashbacks were already coming back. And I love that. All I remember is the net
0: and you were cutting the jerk oh, yeah. bake out of the net. And then you tried to net the next fish
1: and then the fish went through the it, net. It, oh. It, oh, it was a disaster. Well, you know, uh, there's two parts to this. So, so putting it in context, this was my first year as a pro. I had worked really hard as a semi-pro, as an amateur, to get to this level. I finally you're qualified. 25 years old at the time, right? Very young. A young man in our sport. Uh, in a lot of sports, 25-year-old already. But ours it's very young, especially at that time. So late 90s, just qualified for the pro tour. It was only my second event ever. And going into the last day, I was in the lead. And I was beating some of my heroes by just a little bit. Rick Klun, David Fritz, uh Ron Shuffield, guys that I have read about since I was a kid, uh, you know, icons of the sport. Um, I was in the lead as a pro, my second pro tournament ever. Dude, I'm flipping out. And, you know, like a lot of young athletes, a lot of young, uh, you know, young professionals, you're green and you're nervous. And, you know, I had never really had like that kind of pressure or that kind of. Even national exposure, a camera guy, you know, breathing down your back behind you the whole time. And um, I remember I had a sort of a one-two approach to catching fish. And one was largemouth mobile smallmouth, the, the largemouth pattern died. I was like three hours in without a fish, and then I land it on the mother load of smallmouth. And um it was just mayhem. It was a mess. And it was smallmouth every cast for about 40, 45 minutes. I'm not kidding. And it was so crazy and wild that back then we were allowed to use nets and the net I was using was not, it was like cloth and the hooks were getting tangled. I was fishing a jerkbait. I was cutting the net. I was landing fish, but then the hole was so big that the smallmouth were falling out. Um, I had a fish grab the bait off the surface. So I was fishing jerkbait and then I have a follow-up lure and I had one follow it and it didn't get it. So I put the rod down, the jerk baits laid on the top. I went to grab my other rod. A fish came up and ate it right next to the boat. Like that's how good it was. Um, And it was a crazy disastrous day, but I won. I won. And it was such a critical tournament for me. Like, I think you could talk to a lot of people and look at their professional life, their career and say, this was the moment that made it for me. Mm -hmm. And that was one of them, because when you're a young angler in our sport, there's so much pressure, not just from the standpoint of wanting to perform because of the financial end, but, you know, it's the time, the dedication, my, t- my family was supporting me. I had all this pressure. And, you know, when you're that young in your career, a major win changes your career. It, it, it sort of gives you a little bit of stability in a in a time of total flux, and it was a big deal. Winning that event sort of put me on the map a little bit. A uh, hundred thousand dollars at twenty five in that stage of my career as a freshman was a big deal. Um, I needed it financially. I was I I was carrying some debt, you know, from those hotels and gas and entry fees. You know, all those things total up. So it was a big, huge moment for me. Um, but it was also, you know, I think it was still a stage in my career where I was trying to be a little reserved. And I can look back and I've looked back at that same uh, same tournament and it's awesome looking back and watching it. But I also can look back and see where I didn't totally let out what who was who I was at that point. You know, I, I think for a lot of people, when you first get in something, you want to fit in. You, you know, you feel almost this uh, burden to assimilate, to be like the other guys. And back then I can look back and see I had patches on my vest and my shirt was tucked in and I, I, I got excited. Don't get me wrong, but I didn't totally let it out. And, yeah. you know, I could see a reserved kid, young, green kid that, you know, when I, when I look at sort of. What I had become later as my career advanced, um, definitely have changed a little over the years and ha- and opened up to being myself a little more, uh which which is nice. Yeah, Which when is, do you
0: think was the first season where you were really able to be yourself?
1: Yeah, it was. So it was a few years later. It was two thousand two. So that was that was nineteen ninety nine. And for sure, I think the first. Couple, yeah, I said yeah. ninety
0: seven. I'm sorry. Yeah.
1: No, that's okay. It was nine. It was actually. It was actually. I take that back. It was the fall of ninety eight. It was September of ninety eight. That year, it was the season ran in two seasons, 98, 99. So it was the fall of ninety eight. Um, by two thousand two. I sort of um, sort of let started letting my guard down. And that was happening sort of on its own. I was sort of getting sick of trying to sort of be someone that I wasn't. But also happened with a big life event for me where uh, in 2001, my uncle, uh, my uncle Don, who my uncle Don is like, you know, and I know some of your listeners and viewers have uncles that are like dads to them. He was, he was my dad. My dad passed away when I was super young, when I was two in a car accident. So my uncle was sort of my father, my father figure and a guy that introduced me to the sport and just, he's my guy, he's my man. Right. And he was 2001. He was gone through stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, you know, his, his diagnosis actually wasn't real good. He was pretty far along. And, um, you know, as he was going through that fight, My mindset really changed. And I sort of said, you know, uh, I got to, man, you got to enjoy life. You got to be who you are. You got to let go. Nothing's guaranteed in life. Um, So that came out. The never give up thing definitely came out. I got to watch him fighting this thing, you know, battling it. By the way, my uncle's still around today. He beat it. Uh, We love Uncle Don. Shout out to Uncle Don. But in 2000, by 2002, I was like, man i had enough of of this stuff i'm going to be who, I'm, who i am and right. that meant you know letting go a little and you know that's in in dress in the way in the way i acted in the way i talked and you, you know just not being scared to let people know who you are and the interesting thing is that when i did that i instantly noticed like almost like a roller coaster going up that my my brand and my fan base and my sponsors, everything, everything in my life and business started to just boom. Mm. And, you know, I, I think it was a big year for me because I realized, man, you can be who you are. You, you can be different. You can, you know, you, you can be odd or strange. You, you know, you can be that and people will accept you, you know, and, and, uh, and it feels a lot better because you're not sort of hiding behind something that, that you're not.
0: So much of your story is about being this outsider and you know kind of finding your way into this world. like you you grew up in the north, a lot of the anglers were from the south. You were yeah. younger, a lot of them were older at the time. Talk to us about what it was like kind of finding your way in that world.
1: yeah, it was it was um, you know, a different world back then. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of a, a good way to explain this, but for sure, professional fishing in the mid nineties early to mid 90s when i was really working my way up was not a sport that catered toward non-traditional southern anglers mm. so it was a little bit of a struggle and you know you definitely i experienced things and had to work through things that i think had i been from alabama or georgia and had a southern accent and and did things a little different i don't think i would have went through those struggles in saying that, I am so glad I did, right? Because, you know, looking back on some of that stuff, um, it created, it made me who I am today. and Not just in my professional career, but in my life, right? In my life, I'm, I'm the person I am today because of, of those things that I went through. So I wouldn't have it any other way. I would never go back in time and change any of that. But there were for sure moments where, you know, you questioned, you know, should I be doing this? you know, the, the, these guys don't want me out here. You know, it's at, at some points, you know, it was even the league that didn't want me there. I was an outsider. I was different, strange, you know? So everything was, was tougher, but as I broke those barriers down and it happened first through fans, I think maybe second through sponsors. And then, you know, lastly, you have to gain the trust of the other anglers. I think at some point, eventually, they look and they realize that, man, this, this dude, yeah, he's strange. And I still don't like this guy, but he's here for the right reasons. He's here because he's working his ass off. He loves fishing. He's, he's passionate about fishing to the core. You know, I think eventually people saw that. And, yeah. and so it, it did become easier. And time passed. You know, I can tell you that as our sport became more mainstream, as our sport gained more national visibility. And, you know, of course, the advent of the internet and social media and live TV and stuff like that have helped tremendously. But but as all that happened, you know, I think those barriers started to break down more. So it it wasn't just me. There were a lot of other anglers coming up in the same period that were dealing with the same thing. Aaron Martins, uh, Skeet Reese, Ish Monroe, definitely there were other young anglers that were going through the same thing and fought the same fights, but, um, the, the fishing world is definitely different today. Uh, I'm so happy. I'm a am fa- a participant and a fan. So I love when I watch other leagues and, and, and even events that I don't qualify for the finals. And I see a Japanese angler, I see, uh, a, a black angler, I see, you know, a young kid from Minnesota, Who's like twenty-two? Like I love it. I love it. You know, and and, and it, it's. I think it's great for the sport. Um, you know, you cover enough other uh, sports and enough other pieces of entertainment that that's a critical piece, right? Yeah. It's like if 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 the sport or or that segment of entertainment, if it's all the same, then it's stagnant. You, yeah. Your fan base is stagnant. Yeah. But as you get different characters and different personalities, people want to watch. People relate to that more so i I think it's great i think uh i think the sports come a long way from you know 96 97 98 to 2022 we we definitely come along come a long way
0: you know you mentioned wrestling earlier and you're right like that has a certain element of pro wrestling of these like larger than life characters and you know now you've got dave mercer who's a good friend of mine like announcing you guys like boxing match like i think all of that tied in together makes this so exciting
1: yeah, it's, it's great. And it's 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 entertainment. You know, part of it's entertainment. I think um, no matter what sport you follow, you know, yeah, there's a there's a piece of it that's about the competition. Right. Your favorite team, your favorite athlete. But there's also a part of it that you're watching because of the excitement and the energy yeah. that that event puts off. And yeah. yeah, for sure. I think today you're able to see that a lot better through the participants through the MCs, through the coverage. Uh, live's been great for our sport. We need it live to happen, um, y- you know, because of our arena is so big. We needed that live thing to happen. And uh, it's exciting. It's, uh, I, I can tell you this, Chris. I I remember fishing my first club tournament. I got a John boat for my high school graduation graduation present. I was 18 years old. I got a John boat in June. And I remember fishing my first ever tournament. Small boat tournament, probably 20 boats, official with my good friend Brian the Carpenter, who now produces my podcast. And we didn't catch crap. Zero. Well, I think we caught a keeper. We bombed, we finished last. But I remember that feeling, the, the butterflies, the excitement, the emotion of just just launching. And I still have that today. And, and you know, that's my gauge for me of how long I'm gonna keep competing, you know, and um. I'm not old in my sport, but for sure, I can tell you that I'm in sort of the, the, the fourth quarter, you know, the last couple chapters of my career. But as long as I feel that, I still feel that, man, I, I'm going to keep going,
0: you know? You know, and it's interesting that you bring that up because I remember reading your book and you talk in your book about how if you hadn't won the Classic in 2003, that you were done. Like, that's done. how the book starts, right? Like, I was done. Like, oh yeah, I feel like, Mike, you were put on this earth. To catch largemouth and smallmouth bass. Like, I I'm not calling you a liar, but I'm saying, like, I don't
1: believe that you were done. Yeah. I that may be true. I mean, you know, here's the thing whether, you know, you're philosophical or you're religious or whatever your background is, I I do believe that things happen for a reason, you know? And I think I can look at moments in my life and in my career where, you know, I don't want to say weird things, but Things happen that probably shouldn't have happened. You know, the classic win for sure is one of them. I I was at the lowest point in my life. I had sponsors that were getting ready to leave. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it was pretty much a dead end road for me uh, back in 2003. And then I win this classic with all these strange things that happen, catching the winning fish with a minute to go before I had to make a two and a half hour boat run back <laughs> and get back. To make it in on time, uh, I do believe that. I, I believe a little that destiny, there's destiny, there's fate, that things happen when they're supposed to happen. Uh, I, I'm a believer in that, and I'm also a believer that you know you know, you'll know when the next thing is, is it's time to move to the next thing. I've had a few of those happen in my life. I've had a few you know things that have popped up that I had to go do I've had uh, I took a small hiatus in my career back when uh, COVID came around and a lot of the, the national tournaments were shut down, just like a lot of mainstream sports. Um, I took a bit of a, hi- a hiatus, even when the sports, bass fishing started to come back. I took a year off and it, it was such a good thing for me. And it was a it was a reset for for me mentally in my life, for my family. It was a reset. And I needed that. I needed that. but. Um, I think, you know, when you're ready to stop and I think, you know, when you're ready to keep competing and at 50, 30 years in, I, I still have some time left in me Chris, I want to, yeah. I want to win again. I mean, that's the bottom line. Yeah. I can, I, I, I know you hear you, you interview a lot of people and they tell you, you know, they're driven by wanting to win and it's the same for me. I I want to win more. I want to win more trophies. I want to win again. You know, was that reset that you took? Was that like kind of, saying goodbye to the
0: one chapter of your life when you were fishing for major league fishing and then hello again, to going back to bass.
1: It it was, it was, it was a reset in a lot of ways. Um, I, I can tell you that when you do something a certain way for so long, you forget about some things that are important. You, you, you forget, or maybe you don't forget, but you know, they're just misplaced and, that that year and a half i had off was a time for me to say there's other things in life besides that top competition level and you you know so like man getting to see sporting events for my kids getting to see graduations getting to see things that i missed you got to remember for your listeners and viewers the life of a professional fisherman you're gone a lot <laughs> you're gone 250 plus days a year you are not home you're a traveling gypsy Uh, so, you know, it was a great reset for my personal life, but I think you're right. I think from a competitive standpoint, it made me realize that I missed it. I missed the competition and i made me realize that I missed the style of tournament. That is what I grew up on, which is, uh, over at bass. I, for sure, I love professional bass fishing and we have two major tours. Major league fishing has a, a slightly different format. I'm not bashing that. I like it. It was fun. I spent a couple of years there in that league. I liked it. But for me, my heart and soul and sort of who I am is based on the tournament competition that I watched as a 12-year-old, that I watched Rick Klon win a classic, that I watched, you know, Roland Martin and Gary Klein and Denny Brower and those guys, um, the five-fish limit. And, And so, when Becky and I and we made a family decision that I was going to come back and tour again, it was sort of a no brainer for me to go back to Bass, to end my career in a place where I started it. Uh, it feels good. It feels feels natural there. It feels like being home back at that league. So, uh, it, it, again, you know, was it fate? Was it destiny? I don't know. Whatever you want to think, however you want to think about it. But um, I'm glad I, I ended up back at Bass. And I want to ask you this question as a fan, yeah,
0: so many people were were going to major league fishing, and it was like yeah. one name after another after another after another. Yeah. I imagine it wasn't uh, an easy decision to make at all. What was the final straw that made you went, okay, I am going to do it. super tough
1: decision, super tough decision. and this is i I'll try to give a little context to it for you know, listeners of yours that aren't hardcore. We've gone okay? into the weeds here. yeah, yeah, we've gone <laughs> into the weeds, but that's okay. So our sport had a bit of a shakeup where a new league was formed and a vast majority of the big name participants of the big name athletes in the major league defected to this other league. It it was huge in our sport. So, you know, PGA uh, golf had it happen way back when, Uh, NFL had it happen. So other sports have had the same thing happen. And the reasoning was was almost identical. And really what happened is leading up to this sort of new league being created, the only real professional league was sort of, there were things going on there where the anglers felt uh, like they weren't the priority, right? Uh, y- you know, there were a lot of things in a league that happened and the anglers really started, a lot of us were feeling like we were down on that ladder on in what was important. Mm. And so that new league and the move, you know, those 80 guys, 80% of those guys, 80, it was 80 anglers, including myself. A lot of that move was based on a feeling, uh, a, a unified feeling of the angler saying, hey, we, we got we to gotta help change this. If we don't, you know, we got all these young guys coming in. Do we want them to come into a league where we're eighth or ninth on the list of 10 things? No. You know, it was about our own destiny. It was about the anglers having more of a say. It was about the anglers having more control of their professional life. Uh, a little bit of income, right? Like things like that. And and again, you've seen it in other sports. <laughs> you see strikes in, in sports all the time, right? Uh, you know, so, and and I really feel like people are going to probably listen to this and I might get hate mail after this, but I'm going to say it. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. It's all right. I feel like it needed to happen. I feel like, you know, it's still fresh, right? So maybe it's not a universal feeling, but well, there's still a lot of guys that want to do what you did. And there's, and there's still a the lot of guys, uh, yeah. right. There's still a lot of guys that are maybe there that want to be here or, or vice mm-hmm. versa. And it, it had to be done. And I, I think years from now, 10, 15, 20 years from now, we're going to look back and say, man, yeah, you remember the year the Major League Fishing was created? and There was a defection in this. And it was an important thing because what happened is it, I think it made both leagues wake up a little bit and realize that, hey, man, the anglers are an important part of this thing. Like there would be no league if it wasn't for the anglers. Like our fans are here our money is generated because of these anglers. And, you know, I think it was a great wake up call, but to bring things full circle. And for me, again, for me, especially, um, major league fishing didn't necessarily pan out to what I thought it would, you know, and it started to feel a little like where I was before that. And those same problems and things started to creep back. And so, you know, for me, it was a no brainer to go back to bass because I feel like it's a better environment there. Uh, and it just felt more comfortable to me. And, uh, and it was time to go back. Here's the thing though. You know, it's not easy. You can't just go back. You, you know, you, you can't just get back. You have to re-qualify. So, uh, there was a legends rule in place where past, if you want an angle of the year or a Classic you could sort of get in line for this legends exemption. And I didn't want to go back that way, Chris. I was like, man, I made a decision to leave. I want to qualify to get back. So I had to go back uh, last uh, the year before uh, this year. So last year I had to go back and I had to re-qualify. I actually had to go back and fish the semi-pro tour. I had to get in line like everybody else. I had to work hard again. I had to get dirty. I had to Requalify, uh and i ended up second in points Requalified, qualified get back to the the bassmaster elites and it feels good this is this is where i belong for sure it feels like you're back home yes that's what yes, it, feels it does like.
0: yes we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed do you think it's been the biggest change it could be technologically it could be anything else what's been the biggest change you've seen in your sport in the last 30 years
1: yeah there's man there's a lot i right. I, I think I, i'll just give you the the top couple uh you hit one let's start with that one technology is so big in, in our sport the change has been so big and i think i'd argue even more than other sports uh so yeah in other sports you know you've got The materials, right, you know, the the bat, the stick, the the ball, you know, the things that the materials get better, lighter, stronger. We've had those changes. But the technology when it comes to sonar and GPS and the boat and the motor, and that's really helped the anglers become so much more efficient. Uh, And so, you know, so that digital technology in our world, uh, is just crazy. Um, it's yeah. hard for me to keep up. I, I, I'm just being honest. I, you know, uh, I can't I can hardly figure this thing out half the time. So, um, you know, But you have to. To be able to compete, you have to keep up with those uh, ch- technology changes. You have to learn forward-facing sonar. You have to learn side imaging. You have to be able to see a fish now and know what it is out there swimming on a graph. Um, yeah, and to explain have to have, this to people, like people might be familiar
0: with fish finders, which uh, traditionally looked down, and you could see right. what was directly below the boat. Yeah. And they came out with side imaging where you could see what was to the side of the boat. Yes. Now
1: they have 360, where you could see everything around the boat. Yeah, 360 forward facing. Um, the best way to describe that is if you've ever been involved, if if you've ever you know had a baby, or if you've ever saw uh, ultrasound, it's a lot, side imaging and forward-facing sonar three sixties, a lot like ultrasound. Uh, you know, when you look out there, what you see is what's really out there, right? So like traditional 2D, you always had to sort of decipher it. But side imaging, forward-facing sonar 360, you look out there and you see a boulder. and It looks like a boulder. It's a boulder. Yeah. If you see a sunken boat out there 80 feet to your right. That's a sunken boat. It's not, you know, there's no, there's no gray anymore. And another way to describe it is like a flashlight. So forward-facing sonar is a huge new technology. And it's the best way to describe It's like having a flashlight beam when it's dark and you're Mm -hmm. able to shine it out there. And whatever is in the beam of that flashlight, you see, and it's good out to about 50 or 60 feet. It's totally changed the way we fish. Some people argue that it's become unfair. Uh, and, and there's even been arguments made that we should get rid of some of these technologies. I don't see that happening. The bottom line is today's young angler that understands those technologies and can grasp them. They're good. They are so good. Uh, it, it's just, you, you know, there's no way to say it other than these guys are, are being, they're dominant yeah. with these young anglers are being dominant using these new technologies. So, th- so that's a new change. And the other change I think is just how important having a brand and having digital content has become in our sport. Um, And, you know, I think new young anglers, some of them are really good at it and they get it like that. And other new young anglers don't want to be bothered, bothered with it. And that's, that's going to hurt them in, in the long run in their career. Very, very hard in our sport to make a living just catching fish. You yeah. know, you, you almost have to have a brand and you have to create a persona uh, for people. And so that's become really important. Um, you know, uh, social media, YouTube, uh, you Chris, you know, you, you're a master at it. Uh, those things are critical in our sport now for our anglers.
0: Well, you are like a marketing wizard and you were one of the first who really figured out what their brand was and you latched onto that what are, what's some good advice for people who just want to build their personal brand, whether they're in fishing or not?
1: Yeah, it's it, man, it was, you know, when I look back on my career, I, I, I did a lot of stuff wrong. I like, you know, a lot of stuff <laughs> totally backwards and like, you know, bashed my head 20 times before I figured something out. But the, that part of it, things sort of worked out, uh, you know, looking back, I, we did it. I say we, because my wife, Becky got to, got to say, this is a big part of my business and the brand and, and, you know, she's really a key part of it. But, um, I think the biggest thing when I look back, the biggest thing I did, right. And I mentioned a little bit of it earlier in the conversation was being you and, you know, creating a brand that is authentic. And that's, that's, you know, when I look back at other brands, other athletes, other sports, wrestling, NASCAR, you know, whatever, pick, pick anyone you want. The authentic ones are the ones that really shine. And people can relate to that. You know, people, you know, when they're going through that social media feed, when something's not real, when something's canned, when something's forced, mm. it's, it's hard to hide that. It comes through loud and clear. When something's real, when something's from the heart and, and, and the passion and the energy, when all that's, it's, you can feel it. Man, you could almost touch it and you're like, <gasps> you know, it, it's, it's real that was probably the, the biggest thing I did. Right. And, and, you know, uh, you have to be like, I look back on it and yeah, I got a lot of criticism too. A lot, a lot. And, and, you know, I don't know. And I'll just say it. There might be a few new young guys that have some of this, but I don't know if there's been an angler that's been more hated than me. But well, so people.
0: hated that you were like in <laughs> GQ magazine is one of the top 10 most hated athletes in the world. Yeah, I that's also great branding. It's great branding. Yeah, Whoever, I'm terrible. Your
1: publicist who came up with that? Yes. Congratulations. Exactly. I'm, yeah, I'm the worst. But, you know, but, but what I found, and, and people will probably hate me for saying this, but having those haters, those naysayers are very important. It's so critical. And mm. I, I'm t- telling you, like, I love my true fans. They are the most important. But without those detractors, without the haters over the years, that brand wouldn't be as strong. And, you know, I think when you're true to yourself and true to your brand and your brand is real, that's where you really can grow your brand and your fan base in, in leaps and bounds. And um, it's authentic. People relate to it. Uh, and that's that's the, the, the biggest one is just, you know, I, I still, believe it or not, I still am doing a lot of stuff myself. I don't I don't want to lose control of social media or digital content. I'm still very active 95% of it is me. It's what I'm doing. It's, you know, and I read the comments, I meet the people and and I love when you meet people and they say, "Man, I can relate to that. This happened. You remind me of this. I'm just like you." This I I did this because I kept going me you know, there are the stories that make you feel good and make you look back and say, "Man, I you know, I did an okay job. Like it, it worked, you know." And and uh I'm just as proud of that as the trophies and the the accolades and all. I'm just the Are as you pointing are they right over there? Are you pointing at them? I'm I'm in the office and I, it's a weird spot cuz I You, I'm you tell asleep. your camera
0: will we see all these?
1: So th- these <laughs> are like the they're the ones <laughs> I yeah, There we go. There are a couple of the ones there. Like, there's a couple of elites, a couple of FLWs, but there's the classic trophy. Oh, yeah. Angler of the Year. And in the middle there, this might throw people off, but there's a professional kayak tournament that I won last year. That's right. I'm a kayak fisherman, too. Wow. You may be the perfect example
0: of that old cliche of like, I don't care if they love me or they hate me, if it's good news or bad news, as long as they spell my name right.
1: Yeah, I, I think there is truth to that. There's definitely some truth to that. You know, you you want to be in the public eye. You you want you want your brand. You want to be out there all the time. And uh, you know, I think it's a little easier now with with, with social media and digital content to do that. Uh, but you want to be talked about. You definitely want to. Um, I can tell you that my when I look back uh, I decided to go on to college I got a degree in public relations and advertising at the time I was honestly in that program because the only thing I was ever good at was writing copy so I honestly as a freshman in college, I thought, well yeah I'll, I'll still get the fish and and you know but I'll be working at an ad firm or a PR firm that's really what I thought you know um, but when I looked you know, look back, and all these years later, man, that degree helped me tremendously. Just mm-hmm. from the standpoint that I was aware of certain things happening, I think I was maybe more aware of certain opportunities. Uh, you know, and 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 was able to seize that moment uh, better. And you know, it it doesn't happen. Just like I told you, uh, it doesn't happen a lot. Just like I told you with that tournament win, you have these little openings in your career, in your, for your brand, where you have to attack, you have to hit it, you have to realize it, and you have to push. And, you know, I was able to have a couple of those in my career that really helped t- tremendously. Um, you know, whether it was, you know, you mentioned some of the the print that GQ was a great one and uh, the, you know, did some talk shows and, you know, and those Jimmy they, Kimmel. Jimmy Kimmel. Like if those things don't happen and if you don't take advantage of those things, then it's an uphill battle. When, well, cool. those, when those things happen and those little cracks in the window open up, dude, open that freaking window quick because they, they don't happen all the time. Trust me. You know? Well, is, you've
0: done a lot of unconventional things in your career, like a lot, right? we could spend the next five hours talking about that. But I think one of the biggest ones that I thought was so fascinating is you hired a publicist. Yes. And I think from the outside looking in, like, why would a bass fisherman hire a publicist? But it
1: makes so much sense. Yeah, I, you know, it's it's, again, I think a little bit was from maybe the schooling I had, but a lot of it was from looking at other, sports, looking at other athletes and looking at other professions, looking at the entertainment world. Right. And you, you know, you look at them and You say, Oh my gosh, yeah, they're, they're at this level because they hired people that are good to do that job. And, you know, it was a big thing for me at the time. Um, because it was when you're a young fisherman and you're clawing, you're doing everything yourself. And to be honest, like up to that point, Everything I did myself, like my mom was helping me with stuff. Like my mom was helping me like mail t-shirts out to like fans and like like insane stuff. Uh but you know, at that point, you know, I think I realized that man, this was an opportunity for me to get to the next level. From a personal standpoint, right? Like, you know, from a personal standpoint, you want to grow your business and your brand. Um, yeah. but also from the standpoint that I and, and I'm not just saying this, I really Feel like I was lucky that I was involved in the sport in that era where it was getting all these eyeballs and never had. And we, I call it the ESPN era, which is yep. basically, you know, 2001 to about 2007 when ESPN owned the organization. Uh, and it was a time when I was able to get places through a publicist and through some other professionals that I would have never, ever in a million years got to. And I felt obligated to help grow the sport. You know, honestly, that's honestly a part of it. Like I felt like this is the chance to put fishing in front of people. And I've had some amazing opportunities through, through the tournament fishing, through some of the TV shows, City Limits Fishing, Fish My City, My World, some of this, you know, podcasting, you know, this stuff, like get to people. That don't normally see fishing. Get yeah. to those people that we joked about earlier. Yeah. Fishing's a sport. Nah, you crack a beer and you throw a bobber out and watch it. Get to those people. Yeah. Get to people that have never held a fishing rod. Make them make them feel the excitement, the energies. Get a, Get them to know what I feel. You know. And it's been it's been awesome. It's been fun. It's been you know. Uh, it's been a it's been a journey but i i feel like we're pushing it in the right direction you know
0: how many more years do you think you have doing it at the level that you're doing it at right now
1: that's a great um, question
0: uh i don't know i don't know if i you could be that. rick clunn and do it till you're
1: you know as ever old he is you can be that's the beauty of yeah. professional fishing rick clunn is one of the best anglers ever if not the best angler ever he's I don't know what what is he, Chris? In his late seventies, mid. We're gonna look because everyone's gonna be like, "Come on, how did you guys not know?" So I would, I gotta say, mid seventies. I'm I'm gonna guess. Uh, I would I would think you're right. He yeah. is seventy five. He turned seventy six this year. Seventy six. He was my, born in nineteen forty six. Forty six. Born in the forties. Um, you know, you and he's competing at the highest level right now, yeah. right? So the great thing about professional fishing as a sport is you don't have that physicality thing where, you know, you age out because physically you, you can't compete. It's, su- it's such a mental sport that it takes away a lot of that. So you're right. I could compete till I'm 80. Um, uh, but let me, let me tell you this. I think, I think that I will spend the rest of my life working in the fishing as, as, as my career working in the sport of fishing. Um, I think the tournament a piece of that pie is is not as long, but the other stuff, man, I I cannot wait. Like I I really do envision myself fishing, creating content, doing TV shows, doing podcasting, uh, working with sponsors till I'm in a walker, like till they're pushing me around. I see that. I honestly can tell you that. But you know, competing. I, I'll give you a rough gauge. I would say five to. 15 years, five to 10 years. That's a a big range. range. That's a big range. Um, I want to win again for sure. That's a bucket list. I have to do that. I want to win at the highest level again.
0: Let me stop you right there. When you look at the remaining schedule this year, what's your most likely win?
1: Um, You know, for sure, as we get north, as we get into more home territory, I feel better. So when when I look at Thousand Islands, even though I have to try to beat some of the canadian anglers that are just world-class on that fishery uh when i look at thousand islands it's got to be so- the johnston brothers that's it <sighs> man they're amazing up there uh, oh crazy uh lake oneida as i look the south dakota uh the upper chesapeake bay which is the last open here you know they're the ones where my eyes sort of get a little bit bigger but you know here's the thing man the winds sneak up on you and some of the biggest winds in my career happen in places that I probably shouldn't have won. And, Hmm. you know, you're competing against the fish, you know, you're not competing against the other 90 guys, you know, you have to outsmart them. Uh, You just got to be the best angler over three or four days at that moment in time. If you can do that, you win, you hoist the trophy. What does your morning routine look like? Are you talking about fishing days or regular days? I'm
0: sure they're vastly different. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, regular days would be uh, waking up about six six thirty in the morning because I have a big black dog and kids jump on top of me in bed, uh, wake me and Becky up at the same time every day. In fishing, it's a lot earlier. You know, sure. the days are are really long and and tournament week. And I would say, you know, most of the wake up calls are four to four thirty a.m. They are, uh, you know, a quick breakfast, uh, you know, a shower, get dressed and get prepared for the day. And they are literally practice days for me are dark to dark. And so, you know, it, it, it's, it's hard to wrap your hands around that. Cause again, stereotype is it's not a lot of physical activity, but it's a lot, you know, I'm buzzing all over the lake. I'm making a thousand, 2000 casts. I'm lifting the trolling motor a million times. And I'm thinking, you know, the, you know, the amount of calories you burn is incredible, but Dark to dark, I get off the water. I hit a gas station. I refuel the boat. I get back to the room. I throw something down my throat. I pull out maps, whether the paper maps or digital maps. I start thinking about the next day, making notes on what worked, what didn't. And there's three full days of that. Then you're thrust into the tournament, and it's basically the same thing. So yeah. I can tell you, after seven days of of that routine, you're you're wore out. And yeah. and we a lot of us have to fish back to back events, so we have a few uh, this year, um, they're, they're tough. As I get older, I am definitely, uh, I, I, I can feel the difference, you know, from when I was 25 or 30, uh, it, it's definitely taken more of a toll, but I still love it. I still, I still don't mind getting up at four, four 30. Cause I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited about every day, you know, yeah, you are like
0: passion, like in imbo- like you are the personification of passion.
1: I love it. I love it. I love it. And here's the thing, you know, not every professional angler has that routine or that pace for me. I think a little of it's the passion. I'd I'd rather, there's nothing I'd rather be doing than fishing. Part of it's that, but part of it is honestly, um, I feel like I have to work like that. And, and, you know, I think, let me, let me say it this way. I think there are a lot of anglers currently on tour that are naturals that have a natural ability inside of them that makes them one of the greats ever. And, you know, it's almost like you could put a blindfold on them, spin them around 10 times in the middle of the lake they have never been on. And within an hour, they're on the winning fish. I am not like that ever. I, I really, it's like my whole career, I've had to claw and scrape and work and try to dig in. and But I wouldn't have it any other way. I, I love it. I love that that's how I operate. Uh, you know, I, I love that a lot of my wins and my success has been because I just, I worked my ass off, man. I just put a lot of time in, you know, anyone that follows you on social media knows
0: how good of an angler your son Vegas is. Is he going to be better than you?
1: Uh, you know, I think so. I think Vegas has the things that I wish I had that, would have made me one of the true, true You mean great. a father who's one of the best of all time? Uh, not, I, you know, I don't know if it's that. I, I think he's got what, what I just talked about, which is some of that natural ability, but he's got the things that he's got. He got rid of the negatives in my biological makeup. So, you know, the, the passion that I, I'm a very passionate person and that, that's good when things are good. When things are bad, I think there's been times in my career where it's hurt me because I, I tend to be up when I'm up super high and low, super low, lower than most. And Vegas is very even keeled. Uh, I got to watch it as a boat captain for him in the last few years. I got to watch him lose a big one Mm. where I would have been devastated. Critical fish at a critical moment in the tournament breaks them off or jumps off. And as a boat captain, I can't say anything, can't do No, I don't want to disrupt them. So, but inside I'm like, Oh God, oh. I'm, it's like somebody stabbed me with a knife. And I watch him just very cool and collective and not let it get to him. He gets that from my wife, Becky. She's very even keeled. That's going to help him if he decides to mm-hmm. do this, especially it's going to help him in life yeah. period. Yeah. Um, and the other thing he has is a tremendous amount of patience and same thing. I look back in my career. Um, it's being, uh, You know, a thousand miles an hour all the time has helped me in tournaments, but it's for sure hurt me a lot. And, uh, I can look back and think of times when I wish I could have slowed down and settled down more and took my time. And he's got that. He's got the ability to slow down and recognize when you have to fish slow. And he's got the makeup of a a great professional angler. If he does it, you know, Becky and I are very careful to let him be a kid and let him find things that he loves and love them for the right reasons. So, you know, I think as a parent, it, it, it's a tricky rope rope to walk, you know, uh, and we're, we're trying to walk it. So yes, I mean, deep down inside, I would love for him to do it. It'd be, it'd be great. I love watching him fish. I it's, it's, I'm already a proud dad, but at the same time, you know, he loves soccer. He's a huge soccer player and he loves Building, he builds model rockets and, and model airplanes. Like I love that he has an engineering mind and he's building and twin. I can't do that stuff. Um, So we we want them to do what they're passionate about. We want them to be successful in life because it's what they want to do. And yeah, we're yeah. we're advocates of that for for all our kids. You know. I love that so much. I want to selfishly ask you some fishing questions here as we Heck yeah. This up. <laughs>
0: If you could only, if you were showing up to a new lake and you could only yeah. tie on one bait, what would it be?
1: You know, if I was to show up at a new lake and only tie on one bait to catch fish, uh, period, like numbers, it would 100% be a soft plastic. So, you know, to dial it in a li- even a little more, you would ask asked me this 10 years ago, I would have said a shaky head worm. But in today's age, I would say a... Soft stick bait, a soft plastic stick bait. People know them as Senkos. People yeah. know them as Generals. People know them as Dingers. But a four or five inch soft plastic stick bait has so many rigging options. You know, yeah. jig head, ned rig, weightless, wacky. And it just does magical things in the water. The action is so realistic yeah. that yeah. it's my go-to for catching numbers of fish. Now, if, if that question was catered toward big fish, like one bait to catch big ones. It would be a jig, a skirted jig. I've caught more big fish in my life on a skirted jig than any other bait. Large mouth or small mouth? Man, small mouth. People definitely, you know, people down South probably hating on me right now again. They they never uh, caught one, that's why. They never caught one, right. A a, a small mouth. I was lucky enough to grow up in, uh, even here in, in South Jersey, we have some small mouth fisheries and I spent a lot of time in the Great Lakes and upstate New York. Gosh, there's nothing like the fight of a smallmouth. And you, you talk about uh, a smallmouth in current or a river smallmouth. The thing's two pounds, yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe 14, 15, maybe 14, 15 inches. And it feels like a seven or eight or nine pound largemouth. Like that's the fight. And yeah. uh, it's incredible. Some of those fights as a kid, you know, I was 9, 10, 12, 11 years old. Catching no smallmouth. It's why I fish today. So, smallmouth.
0: Yeah. What is the largest smallmouth and largemouth that you've ever caught? Not in a tournament, just in general.
1: Yeah. So, here's the amazing thing on the smallmouth um, the biggest smallmouth I ever caught in my life, I caught practicing for that Lake Erie tournament that we fished. No together. way. I caught my that... largest
0: smallmouth ever in that tournament. Wow.
1: That was six, awesome. six,
0: eight, six, nine. That is a giant. So... Especially in a tournament.
1: Yeah. So I think I had a four, four day practice period. And that one, I think, uh, and I think it was like the second day of practice out around the Bass islands, Peely Island, just famous uh, area out on, on Lake Erie. Um, and I hooked into what, with the drop shot with what I thought was a sheep's head. And that was a fall event. And there were a lot of sheep head biting as well, freshwater drum. And, um, I had just caught like two or three big ones. And I was like, just getting ready to get off of this area. And I'm like, let me catch one more. Mm. And I, and it just didn't move, fought it forever. Horsed it because I thought it was a sheep's head. And it was a seven, one smallmouth on the Rapala scale, which wow, which was giant. It didn't look real. It looked fake. <laughs> i never, I've never caught anything. Everything else from there down has been like six, a little over six or down. So yeah, think a smallmouth ever caught the biggest largemouth was again practicing for a tournament lake amistad the first year that the tour started going there so way back in like the mid or mid mid 2000s 2005 probably six um a 14 three on you guessed it soft stick bait on a spinning rod of all my god in practice so you know just the fish of a lifetime you know i i got uh i have you know, like old school pictures of it. And this is how long ago it was like an old school camera flip phone that I was able to transfer. And, and, you know, now I haven't, it. it's like sort of blurry. You look at it, you're like, man, is that even a bass? It looks like a car. But the one thing I can vividly remember is the size of the eyeballs. Mm. And I'm not kidding you when I tell you that the eyeballs on the thing were like the size of a half dollar, like they just giant eyeballs on this fish. Uh, but two years later, At the same lake, Lake Amistad, in the tournament, I caught a twelve thirteen, which is the biggest bass I've ever caught in professional competition. Wow. Yeah. What is your favorite lake to fish? Favorite lake? I got to go ahead and just say what we mentioned earlier, Lake Lake Champlain. Champlain. (laughs) Lake Champlain. I've, I've fished it for the first time in 1991. I joined a local bass club right out of high school, and they would go there every year for their club trip. I fell in love with the lake as a, young, as a young guy. I still love it. It's to me the most scenic, serene lake that has the perfect mix of largemouth and smallmouth, like literally 50 50 right down the middle in one day to be able to catch a 20 plus pound limit of largemouth and a 20 plus pound limit of smallmouth from the same cove, the same bay. Yeah. That can happen there still. So, yeah, you
0: turn the boat one way, smallmouth, turn the boat the other way, largemouth. Very special place. Have you seen special
1: Champ? Place. I've never seen Champ. You know, I champ I, is I, like I, the Loch Ness monster of it, Lake Champlain. It is. we joke about it all the time. A lot of those early club trips, none of us had bass boats. So we were in rental, you know, 14-foot V-holes with like 15s on the back, and we'd we'd always joke about it. And there have honestly been a few times I've been out there in the middle of the lake, like I'm crossing the middle of Lake Champlain. South of Allberg, like I'm in, I'm in the freaking, you can't see land. That's how far out in the middle of the Lake you are. And you know, you start looking around a little bit. You're like, man, are you getting a little nervous? I hope champ's not real, you know, <laughs> looking around for it, but that everything. lake
0: is terrifying.
1: Terrifying. <laughs> Terrifying. Yeah. It's frightening. It, it, it gets scary big, you know, like, uh, of course, all the Great Lakes do, but, uh, but they
0: roll at least the Great Lakes roll like something about Champlain. I had a terrifying run back from Ticonderoga with Bernie Schultz and I thought I was going to die.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bernie, yeah, I don't know. If Bernie's the best boat driver, but. uh <laughs> Uh, I hope he doesn't hear that, but yeah, well, next you know, time he'll remember this story because I feel like we both thought we were going to die. If I see him, I'll, I'll try to remind him of that, but yeah, that that ride is hellacious. I think it's 80 or 90 miles, which is a giant piece of territory to go in the water, and then you're right, you know, the way that Lake Champlain is situated, it's basically a north to south lake. So you know you get a a, a south wind or a straight north wind, there's no easy way to right. go 80 or 90 miles.
0: Hmm. One final fishing question and then one final question question who's the goat?
1: Oh man, who's the goat? I you know I still have I'm gonna have to say you hear a lot of names thrown around you hear uh, Kevin Van Dam, you hear Roland Martin uh, mm-hmm. as as you know the old school goats. There's some modern goats, you know Jacob wheeler uh, for sure Jordan Lee there's some modern goats out there mm-hmm. But I've got to go with the guy that we talked about, who's Rick Klon. I, I think when you look at his career, um, the fact that he's still fishing, the fact that he's still winning, like he won like a couple years ago, he won beat everybody, beat all these young guys. Like I think that plus, he for sure is what I what I consider the like grandfather, the forefather of mental fishing. You know, he was the first guy to me that looked at the sport and said, why am I catching this fish? You know, why is, why am I able to do this pattern this? Why does this bait work? And he pattern fished and he, he really coined that technique and that mental side of the sport. He's probably one of the first ones, maybe a few other ones, but he's one of the first guys that developed that. So Rick Klein is, is the goat in my opinion.
0: And to think he's a professional athlete who turned 76 this year.
1: And he's That's still insane. fishing, still fishing hard. Love it.
0: <laughs> Mike, I have thoroughly enjoyed this as both a fan of yours and a fan of bass fishing. And like this has been the show is called Insight, but this has been so insightful, not just into your life, but it, a look into the world of what professional bass fishing really is for people who may not understand this. So. Before I ask my next question, I just want to acknowledge you for everything you've done for this sport, for the incredible career that you've had and that you are Thank continuing you. to have. Thank and, you. Uh,
1: I'm very, very grateful to you for that. Thank you. That that means a lot. I appreciate you saying that. Definitely, uh, you know, you look at what you've done in your career and when you hear that, it it means a lot. Coming from you, it means a lot. I appreciate that. Thank you. I end every conversation
0: talking about gratitude because I wake up every day and I say out loud three things that I'm grateful for. And I do it before I go to bed too. Awesome. So, Mike, for you, what are three things in your life that you're grateful for right now?
1: Yeah. Uh, the, at, at the front for sure is family, you know, and we talked a little bit about it in the beginning of this interview was the hard times, the tough times, you know, I, I think for me, you know, family is, has kept me going. It is the most important thing. I'm so grateful for my kids. I've got four wonderful kids. I've got a great wife. I've got a great, you know, father-in-law, mother-in-law, my mom, my uncle. I mean that, it made me who I am and it it keeps me going through bad times. So family for sure is number one, by the way, all three of these are going to stand with or start with F Um, and not one of them is going to be the F you word. So, uh, Uh, (laughs) Second is fishing. I am really, really grateful for it. I know this is gonna sound cheesy and corny and maybe cliche, but Chris fishing saved me. it really did like I'm telling you I can absolutely one thousand percent tell you that looking at where I grew up and the kids and the names and what happened to a lot of them uh saved me, man. It saved me. Uh, you, you know, there were definitely. Different paths that I could have went down, uh, maybe probably should have went down, and I think for me, my family introducing me to the sport and falling in love with fishing, just fishing, not even professional fishing, uh, saved my life. It changed, changed who I for good. It changed who I was. So fishing uh, is is number two, and then the last one, and we we've been talking about it a lot, is the fans. Um, you know, it's the other thing that keeps me going. Um, that definitely when I, when I having tough days or bad days or a shitty event or, you know, whatever, man, the fans keep me going. I've got, I I know you probably have interviewed a million people that say it, but I think I've got the best fan base in the world, man. And it's so diverse. It's so diverse. I've got, you know, fans that are 70, 80 years old and fans that are seven or eight and everything in between different walks of life, different races, religions, different parts of the world. Man, I love my fans. They're the best. Uh, Most of them are crazy and odd and strange and weird like me. A lot of them yell and curse like me and it's okay. And I'm glad that I have that fan base. So I'm very grateful for my fans as
0: well. Well, I'm one of them and you will not remember it, but I've shaken your hand and I've met you a few times and you've always been so incredibly kind to me. And, uh, you know, you've, you've treated me so nicely and you didn't know who I was. And I know that you
1: treat all of your fans that way. So thank you. Thank you for being you. You're welcome. You're welcome. And I just got to say one more time, thank you for having me uh, here, here. This is great. This almost, this does feel a little surreal because, you know, I'm just a regular dude. So I really, no, stop I it. really you appreciate are, it. You were the one of the best to ever do it. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. It was so, fun. Thank
0: you for spending your time with us. I, I know we went way over what we had planned, but I appreciate you spending this time with us. My
1: pleasure. Thank you Thank you a million times over for having me. There we go. Mike Iaconelli, what a true
0: honor, a true pleasure be able to chat with him. One of the all-time greats in the sport of bass fishing and he's someone that I've looked up to for years and years as a bass fisherman myself. I mean, what an inspiration both on the water and off the water as well. He's also a big reason why bass fishing is as exciting as it is when you watch it on TV. And like it's on network TV. You can watch it on Fox and FS1. Like that's pretty amazing. Also. Also, this is the first interview I've ever done with a pro bass fisherman, which I feel, this is just long, long overdue. So I'm so glad that it was Ike that was the first one that we did. I'm sure you know somebody who fishes, so please share this episode with them. I promise you that they'll thank you for it. And take a screenshot, tag us, let us know that you were listening. Mike is at Mike Canelli. I'm at Chris Van Vliet, and tag us so we can repost it. And I will leave you with the words of Theodore Roosevelt, which is along the lines of that whole never-give-up attitude. Courage is not having the strength to go on. It is going on when you don't have the strength. Be great, be grateful, have a great weekend. We'll see you on the next one for some more insight.